Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is November 3rd, 2010, and my guest is Don Boudreau of George Mason University. We blog together at Cafe Hayek. Don, welcome back to Econ Talk. Good to be here, Russ. Our topic for today is China, America's trade relationship with China, and China's currency, the yuan. A lot of people claim that China manipulates its currency to enrich itself and hurt us, uh, that they deliberately pursue a policy of undervaluing its cur- their currency. Uh, what's the argument there? What, what do people who are worried about that, what are they worried about? It's actually not very complicated. For Americans to buy things from the Chinese, Americans first have to convert their dollars into Chinese currency, the yuan, or sometimes called the renminbi. And so if the, if the uh, uh, price of the Chinese currency, of the yuan, in terms of dollars, is low – then Americans get more yuan for any given amount of dollars. And that means that Americans get more – because they have more yuan, they can buy more Chinese goods. More chits to buy their stuff. They get more chits to buy their stuff. And so the lower – And similarly. And on the reverse side, it makes it more difficult, more costly for the Chinese to buy American goods because they need a greater amount of yuan to buy any given amount of American dollars – or put differently, their amount of yuan gets them fewer and fewer American dollars, so they can buy fewer and fewer American goods. So the idea is that if the yuan is undervalued, American exports to China are too low. Chinese are not buying as many as they would otherwise buy of American goods, and Americans' imports from China are too high. We're buying more Chinese goods than we would otherwise buy if the value of the yuan were higher. And is that a worrisome thing? Sounds – if you're a mercantilist, that is, if you think that prosperity comes from exporting, yeah. uh, and you always have to be careful on these kind of issues uh, not to ignore other effects, other prices that can change, other currencies that can interact, uh, and the ramifications of those changes. But just sticking narrowly to this issue, uh, should we be worried – uh, as Americans, that we're buying, um, we're getting more. Essentially, what, what if we strip away the veil of money? What it really says is that when we swap goods, our goods for their goods, we get more than we otherwise would. Is that a correct way to that's say it? That's exactly right. Our terms of trade uh, are improved. Uh, we get more for less, and there's nothing wrong with that. So, it in short, that seems it, like a, a good thing. It is a good thing. But Look, why do people say it's a bad thing? Um, what are they thinking? It, it, this is just one one element of the larger species of protectionist uh, misconceptions. Of course, on a wide variety of areas involving trade, protectionists get things wrong. Uh, you alluded to one. Protectionists think that exports are the benefit from trade and imports are the, are the price we have to pay. Um, so that we can make stuff for other so people. So that we can make stuff and send it abroad for Great other people jobs. to consume. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or, 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 the, or the notion that uh, tariffs – uh, will save jobs here. You know, of course, it saves jobs in those industries that are protected by the tariffs. It, it reduces the number of jobs uh, in, in wages. 
in in import competing, excuse me, in in, in other industries uh, that might export or or not. Um, and so this is just it, it's just a species of the or an element of the common misunderstanding that protectionists often have. Protectionists are world champions at looking at only half the argument. And so uh, it is true that a lower-priced yuan uh, makes it more difficult for some American producers to uh, compete. But it also releases, this is, and this is the other part of the story, the part that you so beautifully referred to in the choice, by the way, it also releases resources and labor to produce things here in America that we might not, that we would not otherwise be able to produce. We get more for less. A lower-priced yuan, and I'm I'm I'm, I'm a back up for a minute. I'm assuming, for purposes of this part of the discussion, that the yuan is undervalued. I, in fact, do not think it, will, it we'll is undervalued. Okay. But assuming it's undervalued, a lower-priced yuan helps America. It doesn't hurt America. A lower-priced yuan by allowing us to get more valuable goods, both direct consumer goods and inputs into uh, produ- uh, 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 products that American manufacturers produce and American service uh, pr- suppliers produce. It makes us wealthier in, in the same way that if, if uh, you know, uh, uh, if suddenly there was a change in, in, in the atmosphere and uh, cell phones started falling down from the sky free of charge, well, we wouldn't be made worse off. Cell phone manufacturers and their workers and their workers, but society would be made wealthier. Now, the people who sh- should be concerned about the uh, undervalued yuan are not Americans, but they are the Chinese people. And this is another part of the story that the folks who are concerned about uh, China's allegedly undervalued currency miss. You know, part of the story is it's usually part of this broader narrative of how the Chinese are very cleverly using monetary policy and industrial policy to to outcompete us. They're going to you know overtake us in the future and all this all these terrible things, and we should be doing the same thing. Then we should be engaging in these mercantilist and protectionist and, and uh, policies, along with you know broader industrial policies. Well, uh, and we'll get to this point in more detail later. If the Chinese yuan is undervalued, then inflation is being created in China. The only way the Chinese authorities can undervalue the yuan is by increasing the supply of yuan relative to to dollars. And that causes inflation in China. Inflation has a whole host of associated problems everyone is familiar with. And so that inflation makes the Chinese people worse off. But but that's only part of what the harm to them. Aren't they also getting fewer goods in return for their – just like we're we're getting more goods per unit of output. They're getting fewer goods per unit of output. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, The mix of those two depends upon exactly – on the details of how the undervaluation is taking place. But there's no question if the yuan is undervalued, it is a subsidy – to Americans for our consumption, and the payers of that subsidy are the Chinese people. And so they're being hurt. We're being helped. So let's talk the, about the mechanics of that monetary policy for a minute before we get into the some more of the uh, issues of harm and, and benefit. Um, the people who pr- 
who who are complaining about this strategic policy on the part of the Chinese, they are implying that the Chinese government is – coming back to your story of a second ago, they are creating more yuan than, than, than they otherwise would. I'm not quite sure how to word that. Sufficiently so that the rate of increase of their currency exceeds the rate of inflation in the United States, thereby cheapening their currency relative to ours. Is that is that accurate? It, it, it's close, except the actual facts are – and here I think we can't avoid the, the actual facts of what's going on. The Chinese, and I, I confess I don't know exactly when it started. It started several years ago. The Chinese made a strategic decision, and I, by strategic, I hear I, I'm going to defend it from the from the. I think the Chinese were wise to do it. Uh, they made a strategic decision to peg the value of the yuan to the dollar. Just before coming into your office for the podcast, I actually looked at at recent yuan dollar exchange rates going back to <clears throat> excuse me 2005 2006, and it's very, very stable. There have been a few periods where, have, where the value of the yuan has actually risen a little bit against the dollar. But it's very, very stable. It's around, right now it's around 6.8 yuan to the dollar. And so it isn't as if – so this is the first point to clarify. It isn't as if every day the value keeps, of the yuan keeps plunging. Keeps plunging keep right? sucking more Yeah, I mean it, it may, it may fall a little bit today. It may rise a little bit tomorrow. The Chinese have made a decision – the Chinese government made a decision or the Chinese central bank to peg the value of the yuan closely to the dollar and it lets it, it lets it uh, lets that value uh, to, against the dollar change only within a very narrow range. Um, now, why do the Chinese do this? Of course, the mercantile story, and the story that everybody seems to know is true, uh, although I think it's not true, is that the idea is so that it artificial it makes Chinese exports artificially inexpensive for Americans and makes American. Or, and other world Im, uh, imports artificially expensive for Chinese consumers. I think a more plausible explanation is that the Chinese government wanted to commit itself to a stable monetary policy. And the, the dollar, relatively speaking, among all currencies, and the dollar is still the, the world reserve currency. The Chinese have said. For sa- now. <clears throat> well, well, that's right. The Chinese have said. Uh, I'm speculating. I obviously haven't read the minutes of the Chinese uh, central bank meetings. If there is a Chinese Alan Meltzer, he will someday. But go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the if there is the, such a thing. The the Chinese by pegging the value of their currency to the value of the world reserve currency, the U.S. dollar, have done two things. At least two things. Number one, they've made a commitment, and by living up to this commitment, they, the, the more t- the time expands, they, 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 they prove that the commitment is, is, is meaningful. They said, look, we are not going to engage in reckless inflation. You can trust the value of our currency. Right? The second thing they've done, which is related to the first, is by keeping the value of the yuan tied closely to that of the dollar, it reduces investor uncertainty. A, 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 a lot of the uncertainties that often arise because of exchange rate fluctuations are gotten rid of. For an American, certainly for an American for, investor, for, for an American, or even for a, a, a Chinese investors who who wish to invest uh, abroad, let's say, uh, uh, because the, the you know, there are enough uncertainties in in the economy as it is. The Chinese have gotten 
virtually eliminated one of them. You, they don't have to worry. Investors don't have to worry about about the value of their uh, investments, or and, and foreigners investing in China because foreigners, would, you, you, all, a lot of these investments are, are ultimately somehow calculated in terms of, of dollars. They don't have to worry about the value of their investments in China uh, plummeting just because of some uncontrollable exchange rate fluctuation. And so the pegged exchange rate reduces the uncertainty that investors face, uh, both directly by reducing the variability of exchange rates between the dollar and the yuan, and more indirectly, but still in a very real way, by reducing the risk of inflation. The Chinese central bank is committed to keeping the dollar pegged, excuse me, the yuan pegged to the dollar. Oh, I want to correct a piece of that. I think maybe I'm wrong, but I would I would have thought that they have not actually gotten rid of the risk of inflation. What they have said is we're going to take the inflation rate of, the, right. that, of that, the dollar. That, that's right. That the dollar is going to be a relatively stable currency. That's right. And I think they're willing to accept – Yes. That, yeah, yeah, I didn't mean to imply otherwise. They, 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 what they, let me put it more – what they've said is, look, uh, you don't have to worry about us being more inflationary than the Fed. Than the U.S. Fed. Than, than, than the United States Federal Reserve, Reserve Bank. And you – know, But more – I think more importantly for people <clears throat> who are transacting in the global economy in dollars, which certainly would include all American investors. And by American investors, I mean American corporations making an investment in Japan, not not somebody buying a a Chinese stock. Mm -hmm. You're saying to those folks, you're going to have – you're not going to have any extra uncertainty transacting in our backyard than you would have in your own backyard where you're going to have to deal with inflation also of of the American dollar. But that – the differential risk of the Chinese – uh, inflation rate is going to be eliminated. Yeah, I mean, th- th- think, think about someone in New York investing in Tennessee. Right? There's a lot of uncertainty. You don't know if the investment will pay off. A whole bunch of things can happen. But one thing you don't have to worry about is the value of your investment in Tennessee cha- uh, f- plummeting uh, uh, dramatically just because it's, it's calculated in a different – it's denominated yeah, in a yeah. different currency. Yeah. Right? And so the Chinese uh, do that with the American dollar. And look, the Chinese government – you know. I, you know, I'm, I'm not a sinologist or whatever they're they're called, but I don't think it's too much of a of a uh, a wild speculation to say the Chinese government they 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 know they are not looked upon with great trust in the world. They certainly have liberalized many of their markets and liberalized liberal policies that I wish the United States in many cases would adopt. Uh, but it's still an authoritarian state. Authoritarian states have a terrible reputation for doing arbitrary authoritarian things. Uh, more generally, governments that use uh, fiat cur- have fiat currencies have a terrible historical record uh, of, of using inflation to get out of trouble when they get into trouble. And so it does, seem, it does seem to me that the Chinese government is interested in having the Chinese economy integrated uh, in, a, in a genuinely productive way more heavily into the world economy. And so, you know, by by saying, look, we're pegging the value of our currency to that of the U.S. dollar, they're saying, again, you can, you, you, you can trust us. Yes, we're communist thugs, but our monetary policy is is basically being conducted by the, the, open, the, I like, the FMOC, FOMC. I like that story, although the fact that they don't – I don't think they talk about that publicly is, is somewhat challenging to it, right? It's not – that would be a good story to tell. Do they tell that story? 
Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. I, I, I don't know. They're somewhat, my impression, I'm not a sinologist either, which should be somebody who studies trigonometry, but it's somebody who studies China <laughs> um, or noses. Um, but my impression is, is that they are quite discreet and, and don't comment much. Uh, the, adopting the American uh, Federal Reserve <laughs> Central Bank philosophy of uh, less is more, better to mm-hmm. uh, stay quiet. So I'll just make that point, but l- let's move on. I think one thing you have to explain, if, if your your story is that this is not just benign, but actually beneficial for the United States. Mm-hmm. And, and, and some, and, and this part of the story is also beneficial for the Chinese people. Of course. Yeah. Right. Unlike the other part, that, yeah. that they pay a price in, in, mm-hmm. in uh, worse terms of trade. Uh I want to go back to the claim of the worriers, which is, I assume is, I mean, what's, when they complain about this, quote, undervalued, and of course, you're sort of, um, you've entered no man's land when you talk about a price being incorrect. Uh, So so there's a certain um, uh, difficulty of rigor of making the case that, that a price should be higher or lower uh, because yeah, you have decided can I, can I stop you there for, yeah, for a minute? Sure. I mean, it's just you know the, the the value of the yuan is what it is the chinese government or central bank cannot control uh, what value the yuan exchanges for on foreign exchange markets the only well like, the, the way it can control it is simply by adjusting the supply of yuan. And so it's conducting monetary policy. It chooses to conduct monetary policy in a certain way. That way has certain consequences about the value of the currency. The Federal Reserve is just as arbitrary in conducting monetary policy. It, it chooses a certain monetary policy. Some people think one is good. Some people think another might be better or worse. But whatever monetary policy it chooses results in a certain uh, a market value for the dollar. And so it's, it's, it's quite amazing to me that Americans, American politicians, will berate the Chinese for conducting an independent monetary you – know, a monetary policy. A particular monetary policy. A particular yeah. monetary policy while, while we do the same. Uh, that, that, that's how they choose to do their monetary policy. And, and again, it's, it's, it's one that I, th- I think uh, all, all things considered in this imperfect world that we live in, given that we don't have free banking and you know, competitive currencies, it's one that I, I believe is beneficial both to the Chinese people and to the world economy as a whole, including Americans. So let, before we – I, I want to come back to the <coughs> warriors for, in a minute but, uh, and their, their concerns, but I have to raise a question I find uh, somewhat mystifying. I've never understood this. Perhaps you can enlighten me. Uh, you'll read sometimes that people will make a similar claim uh, about the U.S. dollar, uh, not a similar claim that we're doing something sinister, but but it should the value of the dollar needs to change. It needs to be higher or lower. Mm-hmm. Uh, people will say the dollar is overvalued. The dollar is undervalued. Government needs to the central bank needs to do something about it. Needs to change the value of the dollar. Um, why would there be any unambiguous impact? For good or bad, of arbitrarily moving the dollar from what it is now, how, how would the people who make those claims? What do they have in mind? What are they saying when they say the dollar is overvalued? They're arguing, I guess, implicitly that if we pursued a different monetary policy that you were just referring to than the one we're, for, that we're doing now, that somehow we would change the price of American goods relative to other goods, as if one, all other currencies would do nothing in, in response. Right, right. 
and two, as if prices wouldn't adjust to offset the so-called benefits of that policy. I, I find that totally mystifying. Yeah. So when, when I get interviewed on the in the media, which I don't get interviewed very much on this because you'll, you'll see why in a second, they say, you know, is the dollar – do we need to raise the value of the dollar? I always say I have no idea. Why would you presume to think that you know what the right price for the dollar is? It's not a very good soundbite, so I don't get called very often. Mm-hmm. Or when people say, the dollar just went up. Is that good or bad for America? I always say, well, I don't know why it went up. And if I don't know why it went up, how can I presume to predict what the impact is since there's supply yeah. and demand? And I, right. I don't get it. Yeah. Am I missing something there? No, I, I think the, the you're not. I think the best Phew. spin to put – or not spin, the best uh, argument, the best way to explain those kinds of claims – would be from a sort of quasi-Keynesian perspective. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not justifying it. <laughs> but look, if you if you take as part one of your starting points that prices of goods and services, or especially wages, are rigid downward, right? Uh, then you might want inflation, and you might want the value of the dollar to fall in order to make those rigidly down th- th- those those nominal prices that won't fall make them lower make them yeah in real in, in real in real terms yeah um and but that's a very different argument from what should the value of the dollar be on international markets or what should the value of the yuan be or the euro be on international markets um the, the you know so it's going back to the to the Chinese issue. The people who don't like the value of the yuan, why don't they just instead of trying to get the Chinese to do something, which is a different country, why don't they just get the Fed to fix this problem? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean that's <laughs> because it just doesn't suit uh, uh, protectionist claims. You know, there there is, and despite the fact that that even Paul Krugman, who was once a good trade economist, a very good trade economist. Uh, has has now uh, jumped on this anti-Chinese bandwagon. Uh, there is nothing more sophisticated in this argument uh, you know, at root than simple protectionism. Um, the the argument that the yuan is undervalued is is, is being spread around as an excuse for Americans to impose. Higher tariffs on Chinese goods, um, and because it's done in a way, you I mean this whole currency issue is not well understood by people. For uh, me, as you can tell. Well, that's <laughs> it, it, not true. Because it's not well understood by the general public. I mean, even less well understood than you know comparative advantage or um, uh, more fundamental issues in economic trade. You know, it, it sounds it sounds to a lot of people okay. Well, I'll just trust the experts. You know, they they say that the Chinese yuan is is undervalued, and that's you know, by saying it's undervalued, that sort of implies its value is something that it shouldn't be. Well, it should be what what our experts say it should be higher, <laughs> higher. Yeah, yeah. And so we uh, we, we look con- Congress, the protections of Congress, don't want. Uh, they want to protect their constituent producers from having to compete more vigorously with the Chinese. That's, it boils down to that, and this is an, an excuse to to uh, uh, ram through protectionist legislation or protectionist policies that uh, uh, will be uh, accepted by the American public as legitimate. 
And they're not legitimate. They're simple protectionist malarkey. So one of the – let's talk about the source of the concern. And I think since there isn't a book you can look up the correct value of the yuan, you can't say, oh, it should be 7.3 and it's 6.8 mm-hmm. per dollar. Therefore, it's undervalued. I can't – there's no um, place to look that up. What I assume people are reacting to is the expansion of Chinese manufacturing capacity and the reduction of U.S. manufacturing capacity with the implication that obviously they're cheating. Mm-hmm. If, if our exports to China are small and our imports from China are large, if our manufacturing sector is shrinking and theirs is expanding, then obviously they're cheating. That's right. But you know, the first point to make, Ross, is as you know, America's manufacturing capacity is not shrinking. Uh, it's expanding. Uh, it, you know, not surprisingly, fell a little bit uh, uh, during the most recent recession. It's already picking up again. Uh, uh, in 2007, it hit an all-time high in in real terms. So America's manufacturing capacity is not not shrinking. This fact, by the way, is so little known. Uh, I always I often quiz students, journalists, others that I talk to. Uh, it's it's a really important fact. Now I have to issue a caveat, which is it's hard to measure. Mm-hmm. You're, you're adding up Boeing seven forty sevens and 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 uh, chips for other things and for computers and and so what we're really talking about is the dollar value. We have to aggregate that. It's, obviously, there's issues of aggregation there, but the but those exist estimates. across the whole world. I mean, correct. Yeah. But but the the point is is that U.S. manufacturing output is massively larger than it was 30, 40 years ago. It's double or triple if In I remember real correctly. Value terms. It, corrected for inflation, we are not being hollowed out. We are a we are a giant in in manufacturing. However. However, as employment's mm-hmm. been falling steadily as yes. a proportion of total employment, manufacturer employment, and then even in absolute terms in some recent years, yep. Yep. since 1950. So yep. for the last 60 years, we've produced a lot more with a lot fewer people, and we call that productivity. Um, yeah. So – but that doesn't stop the concerned people. No, but it, and this is of a piece with the concern over the value of the of – the, of the, Chinese yuan in, in, in the following sense. These myths get out there, and they're very convenient uh, falsehoods, very convenient myths for the protectionist cause. So you just keep repeating that, well, the Chinese yuan is undervalued. The uh, American manufacturing uh, capacity is being hollowed out. Moreover, it's, 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 it, 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 it's going to China. We don't make anything anymore. We flip hamburgers and sell cosmetics. That's simply it's not true. It's not true. It's just, it's just it's crazy talk. Um, but there are people, and I've had discussions with people, both verbally and, and online and you know, email. Uh, there are, that, is, that myth is so ingrained that when you tell it to some people, they just don't accept it. it it's like the Catholic Church refusing to believe that the that the Earth is not the center of the universe. It just can't be true. It's just what we know. Sure. And you know, Galileo comes along with his evidence, and uh, he's not believed. Um, this is not difficult data to discover it's all you know you can go to the any government website that publishes data on economic uh manufacturing output you can find it it's I, we have several posts on cafe hayek uh that present these data but don what about all those factories that that get shut down that move to mexico that move to china that 
all the production that we've lost. Yeah, well, there are factories that that shut down, uh, but there are also factories that open up. Uh, but more importantly, even uh, the the factories that exist that are not shut down are used ever and ever more efficiently. Not only do you have more output per worker, but uh, or I, I I'm pretty sure of this. I can't say I've seen any data on this. I would presume that yeah, you have more output per factory because sure. the machines in the factory are are more efficient. And it's not you know, and it's not just people have to remember it's not just uh, better worker skills, a, a, a deeper division of labor, and, you know, more powerful, reliable machines that increase manufacturing productivity. It's some things that you, people never think about. Improvements in in packaging material increase manufacturing productivity. That means that there's le- as packaging materials improve, there is less and less damage uh, 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 done to goods in transit. Uh, as Communications technology improves. Manufacturing firms are better able to coordinate uh, uh, their supplies uh, and 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 shipping their outputs to to retail markets. So a wide variety of things cause American manufacturing output to rise. But the fact is, you know, the fact is, it, it, it is rising. Uh, and- Despite the fact that, of course, that there are many things that we used to make here in the United States, we don't make anymore because it's not profitable to make them here anymore. It's more profitable to make them elsewhere, but we continue to make lots of things here. Well, I can't resist, but this is, this is you know, this is what you call in the choice, the roundabout uh, way of production, roundabout means of production. This is what uh, Steve Landsberg, uh, in a brilliant blog post of, or uh, actually I think it was in his 1993 book, The Armchair Economist, talked, he described the, the Iowa corn, the Iowa car crop, yeah. where Americans produce cars by growing corn, shipping the corn over the water, and in return, we get cars. And it's a beautiful way and a very efficient way to produce cars. Uh, fundamentally no different than, uh, you know, producing cars in a factory, just just more efficient. Um, but the issue of the Chinese currency being devalued, the issue of being undervalued, the issue of manufacturing being hollowed out, the issue of American workers making no gains over the past f- nearly 40 years, uh, all the, 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 the issue of... Uh, of uh, uh, the, the the WTO uh, getting you know unjust unjustly eating into American sovereignty, all these and many more are just convenient myths trotted out by those seeking protection, and because it requires a little bit of effort to think about and check, a lot of people don't 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 do it. But I, again, I, I on the topic of this podcast, I just do not believe it's true. That the uh, Chinese yuan is undervalued. Its value is what it is, and it reflects the the monetary policy choices of the central bank of China. I just want to mention, by the way, that uh, that that Iowa car crop uh, metaphor. I, I first saw it. I, I used a similar uh, metaphor in, in the choice, but I first saw it from James Ingram, a former sure. professor of mine at the yeah. University of North Carolina, in one of his books, uh, going back probably about fifty years ago, almost fifty. Years ago when he first wrote it, uh, maybe 40-something. Um, so all that's true, but – and here's the but that I think is the sticking point for the average American who is worried about equality, fairness, justice, a level playing field. It remains true, and this is a fundamental fact. It remains true that we import more from China than they import from us and, in goods and services. Mm-hmm. Now – uh, 
we'll talk. We've already touched on why that might not be a that might be a good thing. But I think a lot of people hear that and they go, "Well, that's an imbalance," and that must mean they're not playing fairly. Now, you and I talk all the time about there's a lot of trade imbalances between the different states in America. The fact that I guarantee Idaho Idaho doesn't import uh, the same amount uh, from California as California imports from Idaho. Um, any two states have trade imbalances. They share the same currency, so obviously there can be reasons for imbalance that have nothing to do with currency manipulation. But I think a lot of people see that, quote, imbalance, and they say, oh, that's unfair. They're artificially rigging the system so that they're getting more – I was going to say stuff from us. It's actually, of course, the opposite. They're, they're somehow – they're rigging the system to give us more stuff than they're taking from us. Why that's considered <laughs> – Yeah, unfair or bad, yeah. If it, but, you know the, – the, you know, we, I just listed a whole bunch of myths earlier. Perhaps there's no myth in the international trade uh, arena that is more pernicious and more widely misunderstood than that of trade deficits. And we had a whole podcast on trade deficits earlier, so I won't. I won't. It always there's, there's, it's never. Uh, okay. It's always good to take another crack at at that issue. Well, you know, there is nothing in economic theory, as you know, nothing at all in economic theory. That suggests that in a nation, in a world, a globe of uh, nearly two hundred different nations, that trade between each and every pair of those two hundred nations should be quote unquote balanced. There is, it would be freakish if that uh, happened, where the amounts that Americans buy from the Chinese are equal to the amounts that Americans buy from uh, sell to the Chinese, and same with Americans in Brazil, same with Brazil and China. There is – it would be freakish if that happened. Uh, that would have to be manipulated to bring that about. Uh, there's there's uh, n- nothing at all uh, bad, unusual about any two nations having trade uh, – you know, so-called imbalanced trade. But I, I, I want to also qu- quickly insert here the whole, the, whole ter- the whole term balance is nuts. Trade, trade is always balanced. Um, uh, the when the when the uh, w- w- at least from the global perspective, when America is running a global trade deficit, current account deficit with with all other countries that it trades with, uh, then that means that all these other countries are investing uh, that deficit in American assets. So we have a corresponding capital account surplus. And when you put it that way, that's a net inflow of capital into America. And when you put it that way, you say, whoa, what's, what's, what's wrong with that? The very fact that the press – I think the press just does it out of ignorance. The very fact that the politicians who do it both out of ignorance and out of uh, uh, manipulativeness uh, always talk about the trade deficit, uh, never mention the capital account surplus unless it's maybe the Wall Street Journal. Uh, uh, it's further evidence that uh, there's, a, there's a kind of – Almost, almost perverse demand uh, to, to to scare Americans about the dangers, the alleged dangers of of foreign trade. Uh, and there is no reason. I mean, there's nothing about the trade deficit, either a global trade deficit, or certainly nothing about a trade deficit with an individual country that that warrants alarm. So, to talk, let's talk about that that capital account for a minute, and and the implications for the U.S. and both the U.S. and China. Uh, the image I like to think of is a boat. Boats are going from the U.S. to China filled with stuff, mm-hmm. 
and boats are returning from China to the U.S. with stuff, and the value of the stuff that goes to China is less than the value of the stuff that comes to the United States. That's what it means to run a, tr a trade uh, a, a trade deficit. But, of course, there are other things on the boat besides the goods. Mm -hmm. There's services to start with. Not, not a lot, but there's some services, and they're financial and they're consulting, financial advice, um, legal services, I assume. Mm -hmm. uh, tourism is, is also – but, but – Education. Education, absolutely. But the most important part that's missing when you look at the boats is there's also little pieces of paper uh, on the boats going from the United States to China because, as you point out, trade's always going to be – certainly balanced worldwide. So if you want to think about all the countries we trade with, we send them a bunch of stuff. They send us a bunch of stuff. But if we're running a trade deficit, it means we're also sending them addition to stuff. We're sending them claims on future uh, on American assets in many, many diverse forms. Or in like future American goods. Right. Yeah. It, that's the right way to say it. As you point out, uh, it's not IOUs. It's not debt. Some of it is debt. Some of it is – It can become debt. And yeah. some of it is debt. Some of it is American treasuries. Mm -hmm. Some of it – so issued by the government. That, that's debt issued by the U.S. government. Some of it is corporate debt. It is bonds issued by American companies raising capital for new investment, mm -hmm. which is very different than the U.S. government borrowing money mm -hmm. uh, typically. Mm -hmm. And it's also equity. It is pieces of paper that give – Chinese investors, either the government or individuals, a claim, a share of future American profitability that may or may not materialize, of course. That's right. Some of those bets may turn out to be worthless, in which case we got stuff for pieces of paper, and that's a pretty good deal. It could be foreign direct investment, too. Actually spending the dollars over here building a factory. Correct. Yeah. So, what, again, giving the critics their due. If they're arguing that the yuan is artificially low, making U.S. goods artificially expensive, mm -hmm. what they're doing, though, is they are fundamentally buying American assets with that money in addition to the American goods. And that's what's balancing out – or they're using the dollars for other things, and those investors in other countries in Brazil or mm -hmm. Japan are using the money to buy American capital. Right. Um, why are they doing that? Again, taking the argument this is unnatural, that there's some strategy here, and in particular, we know that the Chinese are accumulating and have accumulated large amounts of U.S. treasuries. Mm -hmm. What are they doing? What do you think they're doing? Well, there's a, there, I mean, the, 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 especially when you bring in the U.S. treasuries part, you know, uh, now we have a whole mayor's nest of different uh, related issues. Yeah, go ahead. Um, try to try to untangle the mare's nest to use. Uh, well, let's to start. Mix let's start with the U.S. with the U.S. Treasuries. Um, the the, it, the trade deficit uh, can be a symptom, and I think often is a symptom in in the modern world of uh, national fiat currencies. Trade deficit uh, is often a symptom of something good: foreigners' willingness to invest in your economy. It can, it can, however, be a symptom of some malady. Um, in the case of the U.S., uh, I think it's still mostly the former, but increasingly the latter. And the malady is uh, excessive debt accumulation by Uncle Sam, excessive deficit spending. And so uh, uh, Congress spends way too much. It has to borrow money to finance this spending. And foreigners are among some of the people who are lending Uncle Sam the money. And so to that extent, and if you believe that 
this deficit spending is unjustified, as I do, then to that extent, the trade deficit is a symptom of a malady. Now, here's an irony. If you believe that the deficit spending is justified now, as a lot of people do in this recession, right? Then the they're tra- not in this room, but, but no, they're not in this room. But, but a lot of if you're Paul there. Krugman, you want even more of it, right? Right. Then it is totally inconsistent if you believe that the trade deficit is justified. Excuse me, the budget deficit is justified. It's totally inconsistent to bemoan the trade deficit. Yeah. Because foreigners are helping us to fund this necessary thing that you're. Yes, yes, and it's particularly hypocritical for members of Congress who vote for deficit spending expenditures with, with in, in one breath to vote for, vote for and justify the deficit budget deficit spending to in the and then with the other breath the very next breath sometimes criticize the chinese for running a trade deficit with america so uh, claim- and so and so um uh but 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 I'm going to finish my thought on this yeah sorry uh even to the extent that today's trade deficit is a symptom of the malady that you and i think it is of excessive Government budget deficit spending. The trade deficit itself is still not a bad thing. Uh, uh, I would prefer, and I think every American should prefer, that that as many people around the globe uh, be willing to help Uncle Sam fund his debt uh, than than not. If 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 Americans, if Uncle Sam had to depend only upon Americans to fund that debt, right, interest rates would be a lot higher. Because the Chinese are willing to buy some of that debt, not just Chinese, other foreigners are willing to buy some of that debt. Some American funds that would otherwise go to buy government debt are now released to go into the private sector. Um, and, uh, and and so I, I, I'm given some level, given whatever level we have of government budget uh, deficit financing, I'm delighted that that foreigners want to help us uh, uh, pay for pay for part. Of it. I saw an estimate just recently. Uh, it's an NBR paper somewhere. Uh, we'll try that, to find actually, it's 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 in a, it's in a new paper that I wanted I wanted to tell you about. The has the has the Fed been a failure by uh, our colleague Larry White uh, as well as George Selgin and Bill Straps down at the University of Georgia, and they cite a paper in there in which they argue which which found that uh, I think from 1977 till 1997, the willingness of foreigners to buy U.S. Treasuries kept interest rates real interest rates down a full one percentage point. And you know, oh, a lot. that's a lot. That's right. Uh, and, and and so, I, I I would prefer that Uncle Sam not have a budget deficit. Uh, if he got rid of if he got rid of its budget deficit, no doubt the trade deficit would fall. But the good the good thing in that story would not be the falling trade deficit. That would just be a symptom of. The good fact that the budget deficit, U.S. government budget deficit, has fallen. Now, some people argue that that's all well and good, but it's not sustainable. That what we're doing through this What's pol- not sustainable? this this trades this trade deficit? capital surplus trade deficit. That's nonsense. <laughs> Maybe, but their argument is uh, that what we're doing is we're systematically selling off America, and eventually we're going to have sold off. There's a limit to how much we can. Uh, we can foreigners can invest here, and therefore this is this policy can't continue. This this quote imbalance. Well, this gets th- this issue is, is t- ties in with the the myth that uh, the budget that the trade deficit is is the same thing as debt. And by the way, even John Cochran at Chicago, who's a very good economist, he had a very nice piece last week in the Wall Street Journal. 
and even he slipped, perhaps just unthinkingly, uh, carelessly into the error. He he actually just wrote in a way that that indicated that that the trade deficit is necessarily debt, yeah. and and it's not. That it's a claim that somehow we're yeah living beyond our means. Yeah, it, it's just not true. And the example I like to give, I'll give it. I'll give it again before I get on to the other part of the discussion. If if I buy, and I, I did this once, right? I'm, I'm now an Apple guy, but years ago I was a Sony guy, and I bought a Sony computer. I paid two thousand dollars cash for my Sony computer, and Sony computer was made in Japan. Uh, the Sony Corporation, which is headquartered in Japan, got two thousand American dollars. I don't know what the Sony Corporation did with those two thousand dollars. Let's say it just stuck it in its 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 cash register and forgot about it. Or let's say it invested it in land in Texas. Then that means that the U.S. trade deficit with Japan, U.S. trade deficit with the world, rose by two thousand dollars. But there was no debt. I didn't owe Sony anything. Right. And and Sony didn't owe me anything. That's just one simple example. Um, but the standard argument is is that when they buy U.S. Treasuries, certainly mm-hmm. they're we owe them money in the future to pay those off. Of course, we may end up inflating what, and, and right. paying them back with less. But put that to the side. The part that drives me quite nuts, and I think you as well, is is that if if a, an American corporation's stock is purchased by a foreigner, that that's debt. It's not debt. It's not it's, debt at all. It's it's a it's it. An expectation of future productivity it may not come to be, right. but it's certainly and it, th- th- there's a promise there that there's a claim on future productivity. If we yeah. can, well, no, that, the equity is not even a promise. It's a well, it's a it's a it's a it's a share of the future productivity. Yeah, but but the, if that corporation uh, uh, declines in profitability, yeah, you know, yeah. Then, then then the loss in that case is borne by the foreigner and not by the the American. Correct. Back to this issue of of. Foreigners buying U.S. debt—it it is true. We we have to pay them, but the problem is that taxpayers uh, in the future are going to be burdened with this with having to repay the debt. Right? The problem is not the identity or the place of residence of the debt holders. Right? <laughs> yeah. And so the, the the problem exists even if all Americans hold the debt, or if all foreigners hold the debt. Uh, Jim Buchanan, his first great book, in fact, I think it was his first uh, book book as opposed to collection of essays, was written in 1958 called Public Principles of Public Debt. And one of the myths, the then prevalent myths that Jim exposed in that book is the idea that the, 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 the national debt, the budget, budgetary debt, is no problem if we owe it to ourselves. <laughs> uh, it makes no difference who you owe it to. The problem is having to service the debt. And so all this concern that well we owe it to foreigners, uh, like they're going to get the money, and and then and then what? Is well, that, it, is well, that, it they're going to then hoard it and not use it to stimulate our economy? In, in which case, so so let's say they do hoard it, right? So let's, let's say all the debt's owned by foreigners. We 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 pay it off, right? And then they decide to hoard the money. Well, great. So then they're, they're not coming back to us, demanding our resources and, and goods, leaving more for us. Uh, uh, if of course they do spend the money in America. Well, presumably that's what these people want. These protections wanted all along. Um, but I just want to make I just want to emphasize the point that the, the identity, the nationality, the 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 issuer of the passports of the people who hold uh, U.S. Treasuries is, is is irrelevant. What's relevant is the size of the debt burden and the and the in, and the interest and principal has to be paid off in the future, meaning higher taxes or higher inflation um, to to pay that off. Um, but on the on the issue of of on the other issue of equity, when when foreigners buy 
real estate that gets accounted for in the capital account. So it creates a current account deficit or adds to the current account deficit when they buy equities, uh, when they do foreign direct invest investment here, whether it be buying an existing firm or doing greenfield investment. All of those things increase the U.S. trade deficit, current account deficit. None of those things increases U.S. debt. All of them bring capital to America. That means – There's more to work with. There's, it makes us more productive. Uh, protectionists claim to be concerned about the wage rates that American workers earn. Well, there are a few relations in economics that are, are more well-established than that between – over the long run, between worker productivity and worker compensation. Uh, you raise worker productivity, you raise worker compensation. You lower it, you lower worker compensation in real terms. And just for the record, a lot of people claim that relationship's broken down in recent years, but they make that claim by when looking at – they look at wages, ignoring benefits. If you look it, at, so I use term compensation, yeah. If you look at full compensation, you'll see that that relationship's still very, very steady. Yeah. Um, we, we've got about 10 minutes left. I'd like to look at an issue that came up in our recent – uh, program with Doug Irwin. Mm -hmm. Doug Irwin argued that uh, going back into the data, which uh, which he did very effectively, that in the late 1920s and early 1930s, France pursued a monetary policy that brought a lot of gold in from the rest of the world. They became a significant holder of the world's gold stock. And the implication of that was that they had an enormous inflow of gold, which means that the rest of the world had an outflow of gold, which meant that because of the gold standard of its day and the implicit and sometimes explicit promises that nations had made about their currencies relative to gold, that they experienced deflation. Uh, what, what essentially happened is that France, by hoarding gold, imposed a deflationary spiral on the rest of the world. It reduced the monetary base of the rest of the world. And therefore played a role in bringing on the Great Depression. Uh, when we had that podcast, some people said, well, isn't that what China's doing today? Aren't they pulling in U.S. dollars from uh, – by their trade policy, either, exp either because it's a, a sinister thing that people uh, are worried about or simply because of if, – if you're correct – at just the, the way that their policy has turned out, there's certainly been inflows of American dollars into China as a result of their of their trade policy. Um, isn't that harmful to the rest of the world the way France was? No, and look, the big difference here um, is dollars are not gold. The the very virtue of the gold standard, which in this case turns out actually to, to it, it, it turns into a um, problem with the gold standard, but the, the, the underlying virtue of the gold standard is that gold, the world supply of gold, cannot be increased arbitrarily. Or quickly. Or, 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 or quickly, yes. Right. Well, dollars can be increased as quickly or as much as you want. As we're about to find out here in November. Yeah, and so, I mean, it, if it's true, if the Fed really is worried, rightly or wrongly, about the Chinese causing deflation in America by absorbing U.S. dollars, then... We don't have to to jawbone or take punitive steps against China at all. We just increase the supply of dollars, and it can be done immediately as much as we want. There's no problem with with gold there at all. But again, I don't I don't think that's what's going. On. I, I don't I don't I listened to the great podcast with Doug, by the way. Um, but 
I don't feel I know enough about the the, the French situation to, to 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 make any definitive comments about it. Uh, but I do know enough about gold and dollars to know that you know, they're really different. They're very they're they're, they're very different. Um, and so I, I so I don't I don't know what ultimately the French French policymakers were thinking of or not thinking of uh, what the policymakers in other countries at the time were thinking of or not thinking of. But I do know that uh, uh, the well, I, I do strongly feel that the yuan peg to the dollar, as I said earlier, is is uh, it's a win win for China and for the rest of the world. It, c- 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 compared to a freely floating exchange rate between the dollar and the yuan. So uh, the other issue that. It's related to this that we haven't really – that we've sort of just barely touched on is uh, the accumulation of securities, treasuries in particular, by, by the Chinese. I've never understood this argument, so maybe you're not the right person because I don't think you agree with it either. But this argument that somehow we're at their mercy because they're holding all these uh, U.S. treasuries, uh, aren't they at our mercy? Well, there's that, there's that aspect. Aren't, we, yeah. aren't they at risk? And they've talked about it publicly. That if there's large inflation in the United States, which many people now are expecting, that the value of the promises we've made to them to repay the treasuries that they bought, that the, what that will buy will be less than what they expected when they bought them. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the? Why do you think they're holding? I think I asked this before, but I didn't, I'm not sure you answered it. What do they think? What are? Since I don't think it's a sinister plan to hurt the United States, why are they holding so many U.S. treasuries? Any thoughts? It's a quote, uh, store of value is a standard thought, but is that all? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know, and I don't want to speculate on what the what the Chinese government is thinking on that front. But I, I agree with you completely. I mean, people people should all right, you know, cause this whole foreigner versus non foreigner thing. Like people, are, okay, so the Chinese government holds a lot of U.S. Treasuries. Okay, now what can what what can they do? Right? Uh, these treasuries are are term, right? so it, it's not like the Chinese government can say, "All right, you know, I want to be repaid right now." Right, they, they right. can't hurry it up. They can't hurry it up. What they can do is sell, sell them. Sell yeah. them, as Milton Friedman pointed out. Well, if 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 in order to hurt America, if they, if they dumped a lot of them in the market, right? What Lower. that would do would dramatically lower the price of the treasuries, dramatically raise the interest rate that Uncle Sam has to pay to borrow additional money. To, to, to borrow additional money. Uh, they'd be competing with these Chinese treasuries on the market. That's exactly right. Um, uh, and you know, one thing he says, okay, well, this, this would just be a natural consequence of an irresponsible f- uh, fiscal policy followed by the U.S. government. I mean, suppose people around the world, Americans and non-Americans, uh, assessed U.S. fiscal policy and suddenly got panicky. Well, let's sell U.S. treasuries. And that would be a market signal that the fiscal policy was unsustainable. Now, in the case of the Chinese, the concern is not that they're following doing a market signal. They just want to. They just want to be mean to America. They just want to play. You know, I, oh, I don't. You know, or maybe have some. They have some diplomatic or strategic thing. They want to make. You know, a, a U.S. government. You, how dare you uh, interfere in our relations with Taiwan? Because if, if you do, we're going to. We're going to to, to dump, dump your treasuries. Dump, dump treasuries. Okay. Um, the, so the, the argument is that the Chinese will will sacrifice their own economic advantage right, in order to impose 
uh, an economic harm on the U.S. Well, okay, uh, they might they might do that, but notice they would suffer if, in fact, because they can't. They have, they have a huge stock of them, by the way. They, they, yeah. By starting to sell them off and starting to lower the price, they're diminishing the value of, of what of what they, what they hold. Yeah, uh, uh, but. If, in fact, the market value of these things um, – well, let's not, let's not go let's – not, let's not, we, can, we can agree that the market value of these treasuries would, would, would fall for a long time if China decided to divest itself of all of its U.S. Treasury holdings. Um, then one has to ask, well, still, what Uncle, Uncle Sam can then choose to behave uh, – to, to put some – to behave in a – non-economically rational way, just like the Chinese are doing. Let's take the, the, the I, th- I think, you, let me back up. You need something like the U.S., uh, Chinese, Taiwanese issue to make any sense of this story at all. The Chinese are just not, for the hell of it, going to dump treasuries to, to hurt the U.S. They're gonna have, they would only threaten to do that and, and carry out that threat yeah. to, to, to achieve some other non-economic end, right? All right, and so the, the worry is that the, the U.S., because of this economic threat, uh, will, will succumb. Well, if the Chinese government is capable of, of putting aside its economic welfare for some non-economic end, the U.S. government's capable of doing that too. The U.S. government could say, in this instance, well, look, we don't care what you do to... Our interest rates, we will still um, uh, pr- 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 protect uh, uh, Taiwan. So I don't, I don't see that uh, the U.S. government is in a worse position than the Chinese government. And, and, and keep in mind, all along the way, up until now, the Chinese government has been making it easier for the, for the U.S. government to accumulate, uh, you know, weapons of mass destruction and other things that governments accumulate because by buying all these treasuries, it's made it easier not only for, uh, uh, you know, bread and butter stimulus spending, whatever that means, but, you know, more Pentagon spending too. Yeah, I think, you know, at the root of all this is a um, a view that, that um, economic activity is a race rather than a cooperative endeavor, yeah. right? So people have this paranoia, I think, I consider paranoia or fear that China's going to, quote, get ahead of us. Now, I don't I really know care. That means. I don't I know yeah, what it means. Yeah. Well, let's, let's take the standard argument you hear that, that their standard of living is going to surpass ours. There's, they're way behind us, mm-hmm. but they're growing so fast. Of course, my view is I have no idea how fast they're growing. I don't have any way of knowing whether – I have skepticism about our economic statistics, so let's take that and multiply it times seven. My five-year-old niece is growing faster than my 13-year-old son. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's that too. Yeah. Uh, but let's, let's suppose it's true. Let's suppose their economic data are accurate. They're starting at a low level, so they can grow very fast uh, as they modernize, as they accumulate capital as they from outside China, as they convert non-monetary production at the household level on farms to urban – measured economic activities. There's a whole kind, whole bunch of reasons right. that they're thriving. Exactly. And I say, bless them. <laughs> yeah. I'm thrilled they're thriving. They're, they have a lot of poverty. It's a wonderful thing that their people are doing better than they were before. And the key point to make is their thriving takes nothing away from us. That's right. On average. It does, of course, Americans who compete directly with Chinese and say manufacturing 
have, have had challenges, but there were enormous gains to the other Americans as a result of that that dwarf those yeah, losses. That's the same way that, you know, my, my, you know my, Microsoft's growth takes something away from Apple. You know, I mean, but you know, cl- clearly both of them can grow, and, and, and we don't regret Microsoft's growth or Apple's growth just because it happens to take something away from some competitor. But often it just creates more for both sides. And the part sides, that right. I always find strange is this idea that China's going to get ahead of us that this, in this race, which is, the, I think, the totally incorrect metaphor. But somehow China's going to get ahead of the United States by selling us a lot of inexpensive stuff. Now, of course, if they do that, <laughs> we get ahead an enormous amount as well because we don't yeah. have to spend as much money on this stuff. Yeah. So the only way, if, you're, if that's what you're worried about, if somehow you think that the American way of life, it, that, that your happiness depends on us being number one, which to me is absurd and bizarre, and I'd be thrilled to be number two if by being number two we had a much better life than we have now and we live longer and had better, richer experiences as human beings. But, but if for some reason you care explicitly about our ranking, the only way they can get ahead is by improving us. So it's a, I never understood yeah. this argument that they have some sinister plan, say, for example, to – punish us by dumping treasuries or whatever it is, most of their economic fortunes are tied to us. Uh, they, they help us by doing better. It's a very – We are still far and away – America is, to the extent you want to talk in these kinds of aggregates, uh, you know, the world's largest economy, far and away. And, and so and we have this huge market here, um, uh, and the Chinese have to sell to it and get supplies from it and entrepreneurial ideas from it and capital – from it, um, and so the idea: if, if the Chinese really want to grow economically, then you're right. The idea that they want that would somehow want to hurt us in any absolute way is ludicrous. You, uh, you, you, to, so just a good rule of business: don't shoot your customer. <laughs> right? Don't don't debilitate your customer. Uh, don't pick his wallet. And they're not doing that. They are making us making us richer. It, 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 I think it's a sign of an intellectually confused argument, which is most, of course, protectionism is just a tissue of intellectually confused arguments, where so many of them boil down to they're hurting us by making us better. And so let's show them, let's hurt us even more, and then we'll... Hold them down. Yeah, it's crazy, uh, but... You know, people. You know, people get their. I don't know what people get their economics from. They you know, reading uh, op eds by Pat Buchanan, reading books by the silly William Grider guy, uh, and they you know just perpetuates all sorts of myths that you know may sound acceptable to someone who you know doesn't want to think more than five seconds about the issue, but to anyone who wants to think six or more seconds about the issue, you think, wait, wait that really doesn't make any sense. And they could always read The Choice. <laughs> or Globalization by Don Boudreaux, which we'll put a link to both books up on uh, related to this podcast. But in closing, you know, people do have – there are things other than economics. Obviously, there, there are military issues, foreign yes, policy yes. issues. Yeah. Um, you and I are not experts on those. We don't pretend to be. Um, what we're talking about here, though, are just, just the economics. Yeah. Well, let me, let, let me – on that last issue, let me just mention one thing. We can put a link uh, – you can put a link up to it because Liberty Fund just published it. There's a beautiful 1954 – Monograph by uh, uh, my teacher at Auburn, Leland Yeager, uh, that uh, Liberty Fund put up a year or two ago. Uh, it's got free trade in the title, and it's it's a 
really, really excellent overview of the issues. Even though it's from 54, it's not dated at all. And at the very end, he deals with the national uh, security issue. And uh, he recognizes that it's, it's different from the more traditional economic issues. But he actually makes a strong case for why even that excuse for protectionism is, is, is often overblown. My guest today has been Don Boudreau. Don, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. My pleasure, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.